We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, this is Wednesday already. The Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing today's program and he's engineering as Clark is a bit under the weather. Today we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky, senior legal fellow on whether House Democrats are entitled to the president's tax returns uh, and if they're entitled to mine under any circumstances. We'll talk with him coming up but shortly. We're also going to talk with Dean and Sarah. His book is titled The Unsaved Christian. Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. He writes that as a pastor, he ministers in an area where cultural Christianity is uh, quite the norm. So we'll talk with him about that in the... uh in the latter part of this hour. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. President Trump on Tuesday vetoed a joint resolution calling on the U.S. to end military assistance to Saudi-led forces fighting in Yemen's ongoing civil war, calling it an unnecessary, dangerous attempt to weaken my constitutional authorities, endangering the lives of American citizens and brave service members both today and in the future, end quote. It was just the second veto of Trump's presidency, and Congress lacks the votes to override him a second time. Yuma, the city on the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona, declared a state of emergency, saying it cannot handle the crush of illegal immigrants the government is being forced to release onto its streets. Mayor Douglas Nichols said the migrants are being released by the Border Patrol into his community faster than they can leave, and local shelters are already at an exceeding capacity. He warned of mobs of people roaming the streets looking to satisfy basic human needs, clashing with citizens looking to protect their own property. And according to a report from an organization that focuses on the problems with immigration, but both legal and illegal, more than 10,000 illegal immigrants in the United States come from nations designated as terror sponsors. The report quoted ICE Director Thomas Homan expressing his concern, asserting, my biggest concern isn't how many terrorists have been arrested entering the country illegally, but how many got through. How many did Border Patrol not catch? That's what Americans should be thinking about. And the Trump administration seized and deported some 145,095 criminal illegal aliens inside the United States in 2017-2018, about 1.2 percent of the overall population of the 11.3 million, uh, according to new federal statistics. Some 77,858 were arrested by Immigration and Customs Enforcement officials under the Secure Communities Program and deported in fiscal year 2018, nearly a third in Texas. Another 67,000 were arrested in communities and their homes in 2017 through uh, May of 2018. And Notre Dame, an update, nearly $1 billion in donation, nearly $1 billion in donations have poured in for the vast restoration of the fire-ravaged Notre Dame or Notre Dame uh, Cathedral, but a pledge by French President Emmanuel Macron that the repairs will be completed within five years. 
was facing accusations of being wildly off track. Macron said the renovations uh, to restore iconic 19th century spire vaulted and two thirds of the cathedral's roof would be completed in time for the Paris 2024 Olympics. We will rebuild the cathedral to be even more beautiful. And I want it to be finished within five years. Well, uh, experts have said, however, that the ambitious timeline appears insufficient for such a massive operation. And there are considerations about maintaining what's uh, what's still there and has been. Well, in a case that actually began a few years ago, the California Department of Managed Health Care began forcing religious organizations to pay for elective abortions in their health insurance plans through a seemingly innocuous mandate. The churches sued for their right to remain exempt from providing abortions, something that does not align with their religious conscience, and have been in litigation ever since. Now, new emails revealing in Discovery show that California actually mandated this coverage at Planned Parenthood's bidding and targeted religious organizations on purpose. It wasn't a, an unintended consequence. And a labor watchdog is making the United Auto Workers bribery scandal the centerpiece of its campaign, urging workers to reject unionization. The UAW is attempting to gain a foothold in Right to Work, Tennessee, pushing to organize a Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga that rejected a previous union vote. The election will take place just weeks after a top union official pleaded guilty for his role in a bribery scandal at Chrysler. The Center for Union Facts has made it a priority to inform workers of corruption ahead of the vote. And three days after a homeless veteran was sentenced for his role in a GoFundMe campaign that netted some 402000 plus and defrauded donors with a fake Good Samaritan tale, uh, Kathleen McClure appeared before the same judge in Superior Court in Mount Holly to admit her role in the conspiracy that preyed on people's sympathies. McClure is 29 of Bordentown. Uh, pled guilty Monday before Judge Christopher Geringer as part of an agreement that calls for her to face a four-year prison term. So it does not do uh, do you any good to defraud. Well, and on this day in 1970, with the world anxiously watching Apollo 13, a U.S. lunar spacecraft that suffered a severe malfunction on its journey to the moon, safely returns to Earth. And on this day in 1961, a huge Cold War blunder begins as around 1,500 CIA-trained anti-Castro-Cuban exiles land at the Bay of Pigs on the southern coast of Cuba, hoping to overflow Fidel Castro's communist government. The invasion force was instead faced with total defeat. And on this day in 1937, Daffy Duck makes his first appearance in a Looney Tunes animated short, Porky's Duck Hunt. The plot has Porky Pig and his dog Rover duck hunting, where they run into sneaky Daffy, who thwarts their efforts to bag the bird. Sorry, I missed it. And on this day in uh, 19, rather 1790, American statesman, printer, scientist, and writer Benjamin Franklin dies in Philadelphia at age 84. Born in Boston in 1706, Franklin became, the, uh, became at 12 years old an apprentice to his half-brother James, a printer and a publisher. I want to let you know, speaking of publishing, that TBN has something new that they're presenting, particularly for women. And I'm so excited that on the 22nd of April, you're invited to join the conversation on Better Together. It's TBN's first daily original program. It's made by women for women, and it encourages women in ways that, well, the view just won't. Well, this is a spirit-filled conversation. It's about friendship and identity, finding our voice, and so much more, issues that are of concern to women. Join Victoria Olstein, Laura Crouch, um, Christine Kane for authentic, fruitful conversations about faith and life. And there will be other women coming in and out of that conversation as well. 
then again, we're inviting you to be a part of it. They're going to cover topics like friendships, toxic relationships. And don't we need to talk about that in a safe environment, in a constructive and edifying way about our identity, social media, not only as it relates to us as women, but our families as well. Intimacy with God, uh, just raising children and being a part of a family, a good mom, a good wife. Uh, relating to other women and how to hear God's voice. These are just some of the many topics that are relevant to women that you're going to hear as part of the conversation on Better Together. I want to encourage you to join the circle for some genuine dialogue. Again, the program will begin on TBN the 22nd of April. The program is titled Better Together. Check it up uh, out on their website. Uh, You can learn a bit more about it, uh, but make sure that you are part of that conversation, Better Together. That's uh, that's going to be pretty, pretty interesting. All right. 15 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In just a moment, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky on whether the Democrats uh, are entitled to the president's tax return. While we're waiting, I want to mention that House Bill 2217 uh, is up for a vote tomorrow in the House uh, on the floor of the House here in the state of Oregon. House Bill 2217, you might recall, would substantially expand the ways that uh, lethal drugs and physician-assisted suicide can be administered. Now, this uh, further broadens uh, a loophole that's been a concern for quite some time in that law that would make it possible for someone with malicious intent to pressure or force someone uh, to um, commit suicide. Uh, And there's also Senate Bill 579 that would uh, waive the 15-day waiting period uh, under certain cases. And again, that opens the possibility of pressuring someone into uh, assisted suicide. You can go to the Oregon Right to Life website if you're Uh, interested in communicating, and I hope you will, with your lawmakers in both the House for House Bill 2217 and the Senate, Senate Bill 579, as they are both expected, uh, one on the House floor tomorrow, the Senate bill uh, sometime very shortly. Well, in a move reminiscent of Richard Nixon, Representative Richard Neal, the chairman of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee, has sent a letter to the IRS commissioner demanding copies of the tax returns of President Trump and eight of his companies for the past six years. Well, the uh, question is uh, whether or not the House Democrats are entitled to the president's tax returns. Now, you may argue that I would like to see them or I would prefer to have them available. But are they entitled to the president's tax returns? And by extension, are they entitled to mine? Well, here to talk about that is Hans von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow with the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me back. Well, this issue has been going on uh, back and forth for quite some time. The latest round features the... uh, Uh, The Democrats in the House uh, calling on the IRS commissioner demanding copies of the president's uh, tax returns uh, for him and eight of his companies. Is there um, a constitutional uh, provision under which the House Democrats are entitled to the the president's tax returns or for that matter, a statute? Well, the answer, I think, really is no. At least that's the argument that uh, Trump's uh, lawyer, a a very well-known litigator, Supreme Court litigator in Washington, and Will Consovoy says. And uh, here's the situation. Um, After uh, the Richard Nixon presidency, uh, Congress uh, put in a provision that made um, all tax returns of people like us uh, confidential. And, in fact, they made it a crime for a government official to disclose that tax return. And, and you may recall, Georgine, that's because there were rumors that Richard Nixon wanted to use the IRS and tax returns to go after his p- political opponents. Um, they did put an exception 
into that uh, statute that says that um, uh, the chairman of certain committees, in this case the House and Way, House Ways and Means Committee uh, in the House and the Senate Finance Committee, uh, could request copies of the tax uh, uh, of the tax returns of, of particular taxpayers. But that law is limited by the constitutional limitations on Congress. And that limitation is this. The Supreme Court has said on uh, numerous occasions in prior disputes that um, the investigative power of Congress is limited to when it's working on and has a legislative purpose. In, In other words, it can't just decide that it wants to investigate a particular person because they don't like him and get his tax returns and all other kinds of private information. There has to be a legislative purpose before it. And uh, kind of infamously, <laughs> the, the major Supreme Court case on this is uh, involved, the, remember, the House Un-American Activities mm-hmm. Committee that Joe McCarthy ran. And the Supreme Court said, you, you can't use your investigative powers just for the purpose of exposing somebody that you don't like. And that's, in fact, the argument Trump's lawyer is making, that there is no legislative purpose to this. And the, the way he points that out is that uh, Neil, the, the chairman of the uh, House, Ways and Committee, uh, House Ways and Means Committee, who's made this demand, says, oh, well, his legislative purpose is to examine how the IRS conducts audits of uh, presidents. Well, uh, Trump's lawyer points out, that, well, if that's the case, then why did he only ask for the tax returns of Donald Trump and not of any other uh, prior presidents? Why did he ask for four years of tax returns for Donald Trump before he ever became president? And most telling, uh, how come he hasn't asked a single question of the IRS about their policies and procedures? in how they conduct audits of presidents. And that, Trump's lawyer says, shows that that's just a sham and that they just want to get these tax returns uh, for political partisan reasons. Are they pointing to any evidence of wrongdoing in their efforts to acquire the president's tax returns? Uh, no, they, they haven't uh, at all. And in fact, uh, even that really wouldn't uh, justify what they're doing because the Supreme Court has also said in, in other cases that um, uh, Congress can't us- usurp the legislative function. They can't, for example, act like a mini IRS and re-examine somebody's taxes because they disagree with the way the IRS uh, audited you. They they can't do that. That. That's a violation of separation of powers, and it encroaches on the legislative branch and its duty to to carry out the law. So, look, this could end up in court if it does. I actually think the president would probably win because I think his lawyer makes a much stronger argument than the House is making in their right to have these tax returns. I know one of the things that they're looking to do is perhaps continue the Russian investigation. Uh, They want to look for a Deutsche Bank connection to uh, the president's campaign, to the president himself. Uh, Is this a fishing expedition from your perspective? Yeah, I I think it is. And it's important to keep in mind that Neil, uh, again, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, he hasn't said anything like that. He, He claims, well, this is simply to, like I said, see how the IRS conducts audits of presidents. So 
if in fact that is what they're trying to do, they have not officially said that. Hmm. Now, with the Mueller report due out uh, tomorrow morning, I think 930-ish Eastern time, and a press conference to follow, is it likely that there's anything in that report that would justify demanding the president's tax returns um, or that would um, at least give a, a cause for uh, them requesting them? Look, I, you know, I can't really say. It's, it's apparently something like 400 pages, but I seriously doubt it um, because uh, – uh, you know, William Barr, the attorney general, has already said that uh, the report did not um, did not recommend any other criminal charges and no other criminal indictments uh, other than what's already been done by the special counsel, Bob, Bob Mueller. So I, I seriously doubt there's going to be any evidence of any other kind of serious wrongdoing in, in that report. Now, how exceptional is it that President Trump has declined the opportunity, I'll put it that way, uh, to make his tax returns available. And how, how long has this been the practice? How peculiar is this refusal? Well, this didn't start until the 1970s. But even back then, um, uh, presidents didn't always uh, turn over all of their tax returns. Gerald Ford only gave a summary, I think, of one of his. Uh, Ronald Reagan only turned over one. Um, George uh, George W. Bush, he did turn over, uh, he disclosed his tax returns for the eight years he was in office, but not for the years prior uh, to becoming president. Um, Barack Obama did too, but there's no requirement that presidents do this. There's no federal law that requires that presidents do this. It, like I said, it just kind of became a practice uh, really in the, in the 90s uh, when you look at the history of it. I, I personally... I don't really understand the reason for it. Uh, I don't think people decide what candidates to vote for based on what's in their tax returns. I think the average voter doesn't care about that. They care about what does the candidate think and say about particular issues. Yeah, I I tend to agree. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Sure thing. Appreciate it. Again, Hans von Spakovsky, senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, on whether House Democrats are entitled to the president's tax returns. It seems that they are not and that uh, the Supreme Court has made it quite clear uh, that they do not have the authority to demand it. So we'll see what happens next. But as that um, that pressure continues, but with the uh, attorney representing uh, the, uh, the the president, Supreme Court litigator Will uh, Consovoy, uh, he's uh, contesting that demand, telling the general counsel at the Internal Revenue Service in a letter um, that the IRS cannot legally divulge those returns. So I'd put my money on Consovoy at this point. We'll see uh, what happens. 30 minutes after four o'clock. Up next, we're going to talk with Dean and Sarah. He's the author of The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Participating Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and then celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday morning. Well, cultural Christianity rears its head during this season because a lot of people come to the Easter service. They come to the Christmas service. They may self-identify as Christians, but my next guest makes a distinction that may, in fact, save them. Whether it's the Christmas and Easter Christian or the faithful church attender whose hearts are, well, cold toward the Lord, Cultural Christians um, are common in our culture today. Uh, They check the Christian box on a survey. They're fine with going to church, but they're far from God. How do we bring Jesus 
to this overlooked mission field. And I appreciate that he puts it in that way, to an overlooked mission field. He believes that cultural Christianity is the most underserved missionary field in America. Well, in his latest book, The Unsaved Church, published by Moody, Dean and Sarah equips readers to confront cultural Christianity with honest compassion compassion and with grace uh, from the pulpit or in the pews. Well, according to a, a recent study, of U.S. adults, 80% of those polled believe in God, but only 56% believe God as described in the Bible. Well, we're going to talk about this phenomenon. Dean and Sarah is a graduate of Liberty University, holds an MA in theological studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is pursuing his his doctorate in ministry from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and is the founding pastor of City Church. He is passionate about reaching the city of Tallahassee with the gospel and to see the worldwide impact made for Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's begin by talking about your own experience, because you point out that you were raised a cultural Christian. Just define what that is and how that played out in your life. Well, if you'd have asked me when I was growing up if I was a Christian, I would have told you absolutely yes, without hesitation. I would have been offended if you thought otherwise. But, but if you asked me my reasons for believing that, none of my answers would have had anything to do with Jesus Christ. By, yes, I'm a Christian, I meant that I believe in God. I'm not an atheist or an agnostic. I'm not Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu, and I guess that means I'm a Christian. <laughs> That's really what it meant. It had nothing to do with Christ. I also made the belief in just that I'm a good person, uh, that I come from a good family, that we go to church sometimes. Notice all the answers I gave you had nothing to do with the gospel, and we're not dependent at all upon the gospel. And again, I'm not the judge of who's a Christian and who's mm-hmm. not, uh, but, but the scriptures are. And nothing in the Bible would indicate that anything in my life would have been a saving faith. Uh, so that's why I call it an unsaved Christian. Went to church all the time, never heard the gospel in my entire life until I went to a Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp when I was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. How did Christ seek and find you? Well, I was ma- raised mainline Protestant. That's not, to, that's not to say there aren't some remnant ones and faithful ones out there. Uh, but mine surely wasn't. And again, went to church every single Sunday, like we were sick or out of town. I could have told you some Bible stories, uh, just some basic kind of Old Testament stories like David and Goliath. I knew a little bit about Jesus but in terms of his actual saving work. Never had anyone tell me I actually needed to be saved. And I was invited by a friend to go to Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and we had a speaker at a retreat, like a sports camp retreat we went to, and we had an assembly time. And the speaker really just gave a classic gospel presentation that God is a holy God, that I've sinned against him. And that because of that, like, I owe God for my sin. The wages of sin is death. God won't let sin go unpunished. But he's also a merciful and a compassionate God, and he's given his one and only son to pay that penalty for us. He died and rose again for a pen of our sins and by faith trust in him. And then he gave an invitation and asked who wants to come forward uh, to make a decision to trust in Christ. And I jumped out of my seat. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. joked that I'm the first. I joke I'm the first person to ever actually come to Christ and be mad about it. Now, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I had joy. Uh, but I really was thinking as a 13-year-old, I'm walking down the aisle. We're talking old-fashioned answer call here. Yeah. I'm walking, I'm walking down the aisle, and in my mind was, how have I been in church my entire life, and no one has ever told me this before? Mm. Mm. Now, what are some of the challenges, uh, the faith challenges that come with worshiping and ministering in the Bible Belt, a place where those of us on the West Coast uh, look toward as a haven for believers, uh, and yet cultural Christianity thrives there. Yes, I do believe cultural Christianity is everywhere, and I'll explain that yeah. a little bit why I believe that. Uh, but in the Bible, what makes it really complicated is that everyone assumes they're a Christian. 
Uh, there's a lot of confusion. I have a friend who's a pastor in Northern California, and he likes to say what makes it what he enjoys about ministering out there is there's no confusion over who's a Christian and who's not. He said either you're in or you're out usually. Uh, he says where I live here in the South, everybody thinks they're fine. So you almost have to get someone lost in order for them to get saved. They have to be able to see their sin. They have just enough of Jesus to be personally associated with him. And by that, I mean knowledge, maybe even admiration, but nowhere near anything that would actually interfere with their lives. So I would say the, the ruling religion in, in uh, the Bible Belt is a cultural Christianity that has no interference uh, with anyone's life whatsoever. Now, I think it's important for those who don't necessarily understand what we mean by the phrase cultural Christian to talk about why this is a bad thing, because there are some people who are convinced that church attendance is what uh, is sufficient for a relationship with Christ, um, that saving faith consists of uh, attending events that are Christian in orientation, being in a family and a second or third generation Christian, while not having necessarily made a personal declaration of faith. So describe uh, once again what cultural Christianity is and contrast that to um, uh, individual coming to saving faith and being a follower of Jesus. Well, I think for a long time where the confusion is taking place is that folks believe that cultural Christians just need more discipleship, and they need to get more serious about their faith. And I make the case in the book, The Unsaved Christian, that they do not need discipleship. This is a different religion altogether. They need to actually be reached for Christ. They need evangelism and not discipleship. I truly believe that cultural Christianity is its own unique religion, and it's a religion that, again, they, 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 they would hang their hat on, uh, on basic three basic tenets. And the first one is a generic or vague theism, just this basic belief in God. They're not atheists, they're not agnostics. The second thing would be a true belief that they're good people. It's a self-righteousness. It's not like a Pharisee where it causes you to look down on other people but it's only just has confidence in their own goodness and own morality. And it, it takes a lot of hope and a lot of security in that. And the third one's really strange. I don't know where it comes from, but the belief they'll go to heaven when they die. Every cultural Christian funeral I've ever been to, Uncle Johnny is now playing golf with Uncle Steve in the sky. It's one of those things that someone always says every single time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, notice the reasons I just gave you for why those people would think they're a Christian. I didn't mention Jesus one time. So I would say a cultural Christian is someone who defines their Christianity, and I have, I'm putting air quotes up, their Christianity apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. When I was a cultural Christian, and by that I was not saved yet is what I mean, uh, I, the, I, we could say that the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ could have never even taken place, and it wouldn't have affected my faith at all. Now, it's one thing what you and I think about cultural Christianity as opposed to Christianity that is uh, rooted in the gospel. But what does the scripture say? What does Jesus think about this uh, this kind of faith, if you will? I would say he has no recognition of it in terms of it being an acceptable form of faith. Uh, what cultural Christianity does is it appeals to everyone and everyone else but Christ. Uh, I like to say that cultural Christians uh, say, look at me, didn't I do this? And a believer, a born-again believer, would say, no, look to Christ, look what he has done. Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 said, many, not a few, many, <laughs> will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name? And he says he'll tell them, away from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. That could translate today into, didn't I go to church? Didn't I say a prayer before dinner? Wasn't I a good person? Didn't I choke up during the singing of God Bless America? 
And Jesus would say, your appeal is to everything else except to where it actually needs to be for righteousness, which is in him. And he would dismiss us as it not being an acceptable faith. You know, those are terrifying words to consider. I just they had are. a conversation about this with someone earlier this week, um, that those are, are really frightening words. You want to be certain because you don't want to hear those words come from him. It's it's bad enough to just read them in the scripture, but to have uh, have those words spoken to you uh, from him on that day of judgment is a terrifying thought. Yeah, and I don't, say, I don't say those things to scare someone, even though it is terrifying. Uh, I, I, I say I you know, encourage people to think about these things for clarity, just so we know. In the book of First John, he said, I write you these things that you may know. So I always want to make sure people know and understand what the Bible says is a Christian and what the Bible says is not. Yeah, yeah, we want to be certain. And what are some of the hallmarks, and you've touched on this a little bit, of religion without salvation? Yeah, morality, just a, a, a basic Western understanding of morality, um, a great pride in heritage, usually, or a Christian family. Uh, talk, about, talk about things such as values and morals and ethics, uh, much more than ever talk about Christ or the scriptures or the gospel. Also, a confusion with maybe being an American, uh, with being a Christian. They almost see it as a type of nationality, almost an ethnicity, uh, to, you can even go that far. Uh, where, again, it just, these, these common just kind of cultural ideas uh, where Christianity is just kind of tagged on to a long list of somebody's makeup. Like, you know, a Girl Scout would have a bunch of badges on her mm-hmm. vest, on her Girl Scout vest. Mm-hmm. Christianity is kind of viewed that way. It's just another thing on the vest. Uh, but really, it is a generic faith. And that, that, that generic and that word vague is so important to understand cultural Christians. Because, again, the thought of atheism or agnosticism would offend them, but it's not the God of the Bible they believe in, because our God is not vague or generic. He has defined himself through his word. In the book of Hebrews, he said in the past, he spoke through the Psalms, the prophets, but by in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has communicated who he is to us. That generic, vague idea of God is probably the biggest one. Now, one of the more difficult challenges is, and you said early Uh, earlier in our conversation, that uh, it's not up to us to determine who's a Christian, who's not. But how do we navigate the delicate and sensitive um, area of of confronting this uh, false religion? Now, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk about that and give you an opportunity to explain how you, um, from the outside, how you manage to Uh, speak with someone and challenge the notion. So we'll be back in a few moments. Again, we're talking with Dean and Sarah. He is the author of The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 53 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dean and Sarah. He is the author of The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. Now, uh, recognizing what cultural Christianity is, I suppose there are two audiences for your book and the prescriptions in it. One is the individual who recognizes in the definition that you have given himself or herself as a cultural Christian. And then there are those of us who are concerned about friends or family members. Um, How do you approach the subject? We are not the judge. We don't know the hearts of people. And yet we want to um, we want people to have the same assurance of salvation um, that is intended for those who have a relationship with Christ. And I appreciate that question because it's so important. And I think one, I'm not trying to oversimplify it, mm-hmm. but it's just going to take some. It's going to take some courage. It, it just is going to take some courage. I mean, no one ever wants to be accused of being judgmental or anything like that. I don't. I don't want to be that way. No one wants to be that way. But this is going to take courage. And the only way it's really going to happen is if we truly 
in our hearts believe these people are lost. And by lost, I don't mean they're not like us. They're not, I'm talking about they don't know Christ, like they're separated from God. And then that will give us the right mindset, the right, I guess, attitude, the right posture of going to speak with someone as you actually see someone as not someone who needs to shape up or get it together or get back in church. No, but someone who actually needs to trust in the Lord. That, that's what's critical is that posture. So I think it begins there. And then there's two things we're looking for that, that the, the scriptures are looking for for us as, as believers and those who are cultural Christians. The first one is belief. Like, what do we actually believe? Are we believing the gospel? Do you believe in the God of the Bible? Or is it just this generic, vague, big man upstairs, big guy in the sky, you know, kind of American creation of a God? Will we believe about human sin? Will we believe about salvation in Christ? And then after that, the scriptures tell us that a good tree is going to bear fruit. So if we don't see right belief in terms of their belief in their Christianity having nothing to do with the gospel, and then we don't see any actual fruit in their lives that would show repentance, that would show a changed life, that would show a new creation, but even show a desire to grow or be discipled is it as a new Christian even. Then I think we have a scriptural obligation to go, hey, I'm concerned here out of my love for you and my belief in the scriptures, so let's talk to you about this. What are some of the obstacles we might expect on that journey? I think the biggest one, again, it's pretty offensive when you thought you are a Christian your entire life, that someone suggests you're not. <laughs> it's just pretty hard. It's pretty complicated. That it immediately puts up a divider. Uh, so I, I, I recommend taking a little while to get to that part, just asking some good questions along the way. And, and also, people in a cultural Christian, they're going to—I have a cousin who's in this category, and anytime I talk with her— she immediately jumps to the fact that, well, you don't think I'm a good person? And I'm going, okay, well, in my mind, I'm going, you just proved my point that you really think this is about morality. You think this is about good people and bad people. I'm going, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying at all. Like, like that's not what this is about. It's really about the fact that we have sinned against, not randomly, we've sinned against God. And that matters. And God is going to deal with sin, but he's also a God who's given us a way out of that, a way to be forgiven. It was very costly. It cost the life of Christ. So, I think that's another obstacle. Is the cultural Christian really sees things, really believes they're a good person, and takes so much hope in that. So to suggest they might not know the Lord in their eyes is to suggest they're a bad person. And that yeah. obviously, like, is going to cause some offense. And then the third thing, and well, to the last one, I think if I do ten, but the third one I would say is that they really truly think that they're Christians. And by that I mean like their their belief that they believe in God. They're going. It's not like I'm some atheist. It's not like I'm agnostic. What are you talking about? Like, of course I'm a Christian. Why would you even suggest otherwise? There's no category in their mind for what would make them not one. And they think the only difference between themselves and maybe you, if you're actually someone who's trying to follow the Lord, they think the only difference is you're just more into it than they are. They just might say, oh, you're just really, really religious. They don't have the connection. There's a disconnect between, no, no, no. We actually believe two different things. That's what's going on here. So that's just critical to work through those things. Hmm. What do you think brings cultural Christians to church on Christmas and maybe this weekend or Easter? Yeah, what an important time. And I think it's really important, anyone listening out there, you know, we pray that this time of year, this year, time of year especially, that the Lord would bring people to our churches, right? We pray that God would bring guests, bring visitors to come and hear. And then a cultural Christian shows up, God answers our prayer, and we give him a hard time for being there. We say, where you been? Uh, you have to think of these people, again, as not believers. Not atheists, I'm talking about that, but they need Jesus just as bad as the atheist. So this is going to sound a little strange, but it's really important to grasp this, to understand what's going to happen on Easter Sunday. For a cultural Christian, going to church on Christmas and Easter 
is no different than eating turkey on Thanksgiving, than wearing green on St. Patrick's Day, than giving your mom a card or some flowers on Mother's Day, than going to a fireworks show on the 4th of July or trick-or-treating on Halloween. It's just part of what you do. It really has no spiritual significance whatsoever. It's almost a celebration of spring in their eyes. Uh, so you just have to realize that they're coming the door on Easter Sunday, not caring in any way, shape, or form whatsoever if Jesus actually rose from the grave. It's just a cultural outworking and activity we do as Americans uh, on that certain time of year. So you've got to keep that in mind. This is a routine, but what an opportunity. They're coming to us. They're walking in the door already acknowledging something about this holiday. We get a chance to help them understand what it truly is and why it matters and why it's such a significant thing that's ever happened in the history of the world that Jesus is alive and rose from the grave. You um, have a chapter, the conclusion really, a heart check for us all. How do I know I'm not a cultural Christian? And what it essentially means is how do I know I'm a follower of Christ um, in the way that the, this, the gospel requires, uh, which is kind of a, a heart check for anyone who's uh, reading the book or who is considering where do I fall in this Uh, in this lineup, if you will. How important is prayer when we're thinking about uh, influencing, talking with, persuading those who are cultural Christians and haven't yet had the opportunity to have a personal encounter with Christ? I think it's critical. I mean, we believe that God's the one who saves, God's the one who draws, and we're dependent upon Him. We're not dependent upon our cleverness or our crafty words or even a book we might give someone to read. Like We're dependent upon the Spirit of God to open people's eyes problem is see the truth of who he is compared to what uh, they are believing that is the false gospel all all together so i would hope that really praying or prayerful about approaching people you know we talk about these barriers to reaching them let's ask god to knock those barriers down you know it's it's just it's critical and then from there that as we pray we we examine our own hearts paul said to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith you know examine yourself to see if you're in the faith what an important exercise for a christian not only doubting salvation but just to examine going okay where am I at here? Like, I can't believe this. Do have gospel convictions? Are they overflowing in a gospel wisdom? Yeah, and certainly our motivation should be love. Dean and Sarah, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks appreciate it very much. Once again, the name of the book is The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. By the way, James Blend is producing and engineering today's program. Clark Hilton, a little under the weather. His birthday, by the way, is coming up this Sunday. I hope he feels better soon. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us. In this hour, we're going to wind our way through some of the top stories of the day. First of all, Attorney General William Barr is set to hold a news conference uh, tomorrow morning where he's going to discuss the long-awaited release of special counsel Robert Mueller's report. The certain members of Congress are going to be able to see the report without certain redactions, according to the Justice Department. They made that announcement earlier today. Now, the Attorney General is going to be joined by Attorney General, or rather Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein at about 9.30 a.m., Eastern time. They're going, they're expected to discuss the release of the report. Now, this will be interesting because they're characterizing this as a news conference, which suggests that they might take questions and offer some additional answers. Well, the disclosure of a version of the report without certain redactions came in a filing late today in the Roger Stone prosecution. The department said it would publicly redact sections related to Stone's case, which is ongoing. Well, the summary of the report released by the attorney general last month stated that the special counsel found no proof 
proof of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government during the 2016 presidential election. Now, we have since learned that the Mueller team helped uh, with that uh, summary. It remains unclear, however, what the full report will hold, including what Mueller may have found on allegations of obstruction of justice. The attorney general wrote in his summary that evidence was not sufficient to establish certainty that President Trump committed obstruction. So that leaves the door slightly ajar. Anticipating further accusations, a source close to the Trump legal team confirmed to Fox News on Wednesday that the president's lawyers, they've been preparing a counter report to object to any obstruction of justice claims. Now, we were told by the attorney general that the uh, White House has not seen the report. And it's not uncommon in Washington to prepare your rebuttal before you've actually heard the thing you're rebutting. It happens with the State of the Union, for example, all the time. So because this conversation has been going on for two years, it's uh, it's understood what the uh, Democrats are looking for with regard to obstruction of justice. We know what the Mueller team, or at least the White House, knows what the Mueller team has been looking for. So perhaps it's based on um, all of that um, information and that history. But nonetheless, we're being told that he's preparing some kind of a uh, rebuttal uh, to the obstruction uh, for which uh, the Mueller report says there was not sufficient evidence. It's not likely that Trump will be the subject to any prosecution as a result of the details of the report, but it's likely to contain some unflattering details about his efforts to influence the Russian probe, including firing a former FBI director, James Comey. And much of the conversation has been back and forth has been about whether or not that constitutes obstruction of justice. Now, the Mueller report did not cite that as an instance uh, that rose to the level of uh, some kind of prosecution. But nonetheless, that's going to be one of the major issues. Well, Mueller's investigation also included scrutiny of the president's pressure on Comey to end the, an investigation into former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. His public dismay over former Attorney General Jeff Sessions' recusal from the Russian investigation and the president's possible role in drafting an incomplete explanation about a meeting his oldest son took at uh, Trump Tower with a Kremlin-connected lawyer. And details of that meeting were also expected to emerge. Well, the report's been um, slated to be released to the public uh, this morning with redactions, although it's not clear if it will uh, come before or after Barr's press conference. Congress is to be provided with the same redacted report, but Democrats will likely issue a subpoena for the full report with no redactions, despite the fact that there will be, to certain members of Congress, a less redacted form of the report. Uh, They're expected to uh, point to any negative portrayal of the president, referring to the Democrats, as a reason to release the full report, as it could signal that Barr was attempting to shield the president and his family from prosecution. The attorney general has said he's withholding grand jury and classified information, as well as portions relating to ongoing investigations and the privacy or reputation of uh, uncharged peripheral people, But how liberally he interprets those categories is yet to be seen. And uh, I think there were some 30 uh, White House staff that were a part of this investigation who spent many hours being interviewed, interrogated, however they might want to characterize that. And if they said unflattering things about the president and that comes out as they are peripheral people, uncharged peripheral people whose reputations and uh, future positions may be on the line. I'm sure there are some people wringing their hands in anticipation of it all. Well, since Mueller's investigation began over two years ago, he's brought charges against 34 people, including former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn or General Flynn, his uh, former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. Mueller also found evidence to confirm a uh, consolidated effort by the Russian government to influence the 2016 presidential election. Again, tomorrow morning, 930 Eastern time, that report is expected to be made public in its redacted form 
with another less redacted form being made available to certain members, but not all members of Congress. Well, an expansive network of shadowy dark money donors has grown to rival the influence of the conservative Koch brother network. Imagine that dark money in politics. Who knew? It's pumping millions into left-wing causes, ranging from health care to climate change to abortion, all while flying well under the radar of public scrutiny. That's according to an explosive new report that's uh, recently been obtained. The report was uh, conducted by conservative watchdog Capital Research Center. It describes a band of nonprofits operating under the banner of Washington-based philanthropy company Arabella Advisors. These pop-up groups, as they're called, are housed in four Arabella-controlled sister nonprofits, according to the report. The new Venture Fund, 1630 Fund, Hopewell Fund, and Windward Fund. Together, these groups form an interlocking network of dark money, pop-up groups, and other fiscally sponsored projects, all afloat in a half-billion-dollar ocean of cash, the report says. The real puppeteer, though, is Arabella Advisors, which has managed to largely conceal its role in coordinating so much of the professional left's infrastructure under a mask of philanthropy. The report says the Hydra-like a network brought in $1.6 billion between 2013 and 2017 to advance the political policies desired by wealthy left-wing interests as the network's revenues grew by 392%. The four Elabella-controlled sister groups, as they're called, brought in $582 million in 2017 alone, according to the report. If the four groups were a single entity, it would make them the 22nd largest public charity in America, with higher revenues than the American Civil Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood, or the Clinton Foundation. The size and scope of the Arabella network of uh, funds demonstrates far more dark money exists on the left side of the political spectrum than has been previously admitted, the report says. Arabella's website says the company was founded to provide strategic guidance for effective philanthropy and is dedicated to helping clients make a difference on the um, issues that matter most to them, from climate to women and girls' education, good food and more, end quote. All told, the company represents clients with collective assets totaling more than $100 billion. But the report alleges the group blurs the line between philanthropy and political advocacy on issues like Obamacare, gun control, abortion, and opposition to the confirmation of now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And it says that due to the financial arrangements and lack of donor disclosure, it's impossible to know which organizations subsidizes the various campaigns and political movements spawned by Arabella's funds. Well, the company was founded by Eric Kessler, who's worked both in the Clinton administration, where he managed conserva- uh, conservation rather issues, and as a member of the Clinton Global Initiative. He also founded the New Venture Fund and is on the board of 1630 Fund. Arabella didn't respond to a request for comment, um, but the New Venture Fund president, Lee Bodner, uh, in a statement said the New Venture Fund is, a pr- is proud, rather, to work Uh, of our work supporting charitable projects that improve people's lives across the wide range of issues funded by a diverse set of donors. The report claims the group runs a network of astroturf activities, including as many as 340 pop-up groups, which the report says are often little more than websites created to give the appearance of grassroots campaigns. It cites the organization's activities pushing back against Republican efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare as an example of its political activism. 
At a glance, uh, they write, these groups such as Save My Care and Protect Our Care appear to be impassioned examples of citizen act- activists rather, defending Obamacare, the report says. In reality, neither not-for-profit advocacy group appears to have paid, paid staff, held board meetings, or even owned so much as a pin. Consequently, the report says, the groups can be used to run short-term, high-intensity media campaigns targeting the news cycle, such as during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. The report gave the examples, uh, example rather, of activists led by uh, Demand Justice waving glossy Stop Kavanaugh signs in protest of the conservative nominee's confirmation. Demand Justice, led by former Hillary Clinton press secretary Brian Fallon, is very active on judicial issues and is more than just a website. But the report described the organization as part of the broader network, specifically a front for the 1630 Fund. The 1630 Fund, according to a July 2018 portfolio report, was described as among the most prolific political advertisers of 2018 and aired 6,885 broadcast TV ads between January and July while spending some $4.6 million on TV alone. Political cited the group as an example of the left embracing the dark money tactics it long accused the right of weaponizing. Politico identified 12 groups set up through the 1630 Fund on health care alone by serving as um, those groups' fiscal sponsor. 1630 Fund manages the money and aggregates their financial activities in its tax filings, making it hard to work out how much money was spent by the different groups and where. So, uh, again, dark money in politics, it goes both ways. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show right here on KPDQ. Well, Yuma, a city in Arizona, a city on the U.S.-Mexico border, declared a state of emergency yesterday, saying it cannot handle the crush of illegal immigrants the government is being forced to release onto its streets. Mayor Douglas Nichols said the migrants are being released by the Border Patrol into his community faster than they can leave, and local shelters are already at capacity. He warned of mobs of people roaming the streets looking to satisfy basic human needs, clashing with citizens looking to protect their own property. There is an imminent threat on having too many migrants released into our communities, he says. It's above our our capacity as a community to sustain. Well, the move was uh, designed to draw attention, the country's attention, to what locals said was an untenable situation and to beg for solutions from the federal government, which has been at a political stalemate over what to do for quite some time. Mr. Nichols said he's trying to get other Arizona communities to issue similar declarations, hoping a critical mass of voices will cut through the partisan gridlock. The migrants are overwhelmingly families and unaccompanied children from Central America. They're fleeing rough conditions at home. They're drawn north by lax enforcement policies that virtually guarantee they can be quickly released into communities where most disappear into the shadows. Of the children and families that came in 2017, more than 98 percent were still in the United States as of the beginning of this year. So you add 2017 families to 2018 families and now 2019. The Trump administration has been searching for ways to change the incentives that draw the migrants to the United States, but has been resisted at every turn. On Tuesday, Attorney General William Barr announced that migrants 
who take the first step toward asylum claims will no longer have an automatic right to be released on bond while their cases are proceeding. The ruling, though, won't generally affect the children and families who are quickly released under other court rulings and laws. Also yesterday, a Homeland Security Department Advisory Council issued an emergency report calling for the government to take new steps. One solution was to set up regional processing centers along the border to centralize the flow of migrants and new and better facilities to care for children and their families. The problem is those facilities don't exist at this time. The council also pleaded with Congress to pass emergency legislation to speed up asylum cases so a decision can be issued within a month and ask for a fix to the Flores court settlement that imposes a 20-day limit on how long illegal uh, immigrant families can be held in detention. In the meantime, the council said the administration should uh, issue an emergency regulation allowing migrant families to be held. Yuma sits on the line between Arizona and California, surrounded by rough, vacant terrain to its east and its west. That means it's become the drop-off point for thousands of illegal immigrants every week. Streaming into the remote parts of California and Arizona, guided by smugglers who bust them north and then leave them to walk across the border and demand attention from U.S. authorities. Border Patrol agents arrest them in mass. A group of 360 people was apprehended near um, Lukeville, Arizona, earlier in the day. But with no ability to hold them, agents engage in what's called catch and release, processing the migrants and then letting them go at a local bus terminal. Communities along the border have issued desperate pleas for help, but Yuma's state of emergency is the most striking reaction. Mr. Nichols said, and again, this is the mayor of the town, said the local shelter's normal capacity is 150 people, but it can stretch uh, to accommodate 250. It began Tuesday with 200, and Border Patrol agents said they were going to deliver 120 more during the day, putting the facility well beyond its limits. The mayor said even if the city had a bigger building, the number of people swamped the capacity for volunteers and supplies, though he did issue a call for donations of coloring books, diapers, snacks, and bottled water. He said the issue is transportation in town of about 100,000, where bus lengths aren't extensive and there isn't enough capacity to ship people out as far as they uh, are being dropped off by the Border Patrol. It is a crisis. It is an emergency And so far, Congress continues to twiddle its thumbs and resist any suggestion on how to deal with the issue. Meanwhile, according to a report from an organization that focuses on the problems with immigration, both legal and illegal, more than 10,000 immigrants came into the country illegally in the United States from nations uh, designated as terror sponsors. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that they're coming for asylum, that these are people who are fleeing uh, their own countries because they resist what's happening there? It's not altogether clear. The Washington Examiner reports that the Immigration Reform Law Institute revealed on Friday that it's received documents under the Freedom of Information Act that show that the illegals have either been ordered, deported, or have uh, pending final orders or removal, but are still in the United States. The organization uh, reported in response to a, um, an Immigration Reform Law Institute Freedom of Information Act request, Immigration and Customs Enforcement provided records that show that as of June of 2018, there were over 10,000 non-detained illegal aliens in ICE's national docket from Iran, Syria, Sudan, and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. 
or North Korea. Iran led the pack with over 6,000 or 61 percent of their citizens with removal orders followed the, uh, by Syria with 20 percent, Sudan with 18 percent, North Korea with less than a percent. The report quoted ICE Director Thomas Homan expressing his concern, asserting my biggest concern isn't how many terrorists have been arrested entering the country illegally, but how many got through. How many did Border Patrol not catch? That's what Americans should be thinking about. Well, the Brown County Circuit Court, according to the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is a California-based rights organization, has issued a written decision that harshly criticizes the city's attempt to impose sexual orientation and gender identity mandates on religious organizations. The city of De Pere, which is near Green Bay, sought to categorize religious organizations as places of public accommodation. And as such, they would have been subject to non-discrimination mandates on gender identity and sexual orientation. Now, the ordinance applied not only to public accommodations as traditionally defined, but also applied to housing, employment and advertising. Before the ordinance took effect in March of 2018, the Pacific Justice Institute filed a suit on behalf of five churches and a Christian radio station located in that town. Following discovery, PGI uh, moved for summary judgment and the city sought to dismiss the case. The city argued that any time a church opens to the public outside of their traditional role as a house of worship, the city has the right to impose its own values on that church. For example, if you um, have a children's ministry that's that, uh, or a children's event that is open to the general public, that would, uh, would make you vulnerable to that, um, that ordinance. Well, the, in mid-December of last year, The attorney from Pacific Legal, uh, Kevin Snyder, appeared in court and he argued the case. Well, the judge ruled against the city from the bench, noting that an immediate oral decision was necessary to ensure the church's religious freedom during the Christmas season. Well, last Friday, the 15th, uh, the court followed up on uh, that decision with an 18-page written decision detailing its reasoning, which followed closely the arguments that Pacific Legal uh, Institute had presented. The judge labeled the city's ordinance as egregious free speech violation and stated the viewpoint discrimination in the ordinance is straightforward. Churches and religious entities may speak, advertise and otherwise publish their religious beliefs, including expectations of members, attendees and employees and use of the facilities and services provided so long as those beliefs are in agreement with the city's sexual orthodoxy, end quote. Well, as to employment, the court observed, when an employee's conduct falls short of obligations relating to congregational life, a religious institution needs to be able to set the terms and conditions of employment through the exercise of its spiritual authority. The court further addressed the city's attack on churches' uh, community activities, saying whether such programs and activities can be construed as commercial or open to the public does not transform the nature of a church. The city has not yet announced whether it plans to appeal that decision. Brad Dacus, who's the founder and president of Pacific uh, 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 Legal Foundation, um, said that uh, he was uh, thrilled with the court's decision, so clearly recognized and rejected this latest attack on the bedrock Uh, principles of church autonomy and religious freedom. It's been our privilege to represent these religious organizations that courageously stood up for their convictions in the face of government hostility. And this is a pattern we're seeing all across the country where the nature of religious freedom is being challenged uh, and restricted, constricted, if you will, to smaller and smaller areas and under what circumstances. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, multiple Denver area school districts canceled classes today after a Miami woman infatuated, that's the word they used, infatuated with a 1999 Columbine massacre, made threats and traveled to Colorado where she bought firearms earlier this week, according to the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office and the FBI both of which were working on the case. Saul Payas, 18, who has a history of making concerning comments, arrived in Colorado from Miami rather, on Monday early, bought a pump-action shotgun and ammunition, the FBI told uh, reporters on uh, last night. Well, the FBI's Miami office had reportedly alerted its Denver counterpart after learning of the potential threat which I believe uh, came initially from her father. Well, after consulting with the FBI and other law enforcement agencies, Denver Public Schools, Douglas County School District, 27J Schools, Adam 12, Five Star Schools, and many others uh, decided that they were going to cancel classes for the day, uh, according to um, authorities there. Well, the combination of updated photos released by the Jefferson County, Colorado Sheriff's Office on Tuesday uh, and information that apparently traced her movements uh, prevented the tragedy that they feared might be about to take place from happening. Well, authorities said that she was last seen in the foothills of Denver and remained at large. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office uh, was leading multiple agencies in a massive manhunt. And while no warrant had been issued for her arrest, the FBI said the district attorney and the U.S. attorney's office were discussing appropriate charges. Uh, Well, um, more than 20 schools, including Columbine, were put on lockouts on Tuesday, meaning classes were conducted as usual. But entry and exits were heavily uh, restricted for nearly three hours. That was on Tuesday, anticipating that she was in the area and had some nefarious uh, uh, ideas in mind. Well, authorities said she uh, hadn't singled out a particular school but has an infatuation with Columbine and the Columbine shooters. The threat comes just days ahead of the massacre's 20th anniversary. Well, we learned later this morning that that manhunt was successful in that the woman who was allegedly infatuated with the Columbine massacre, who forced schools in Colorado to close uh, after threatening violence, came to an end this uh, late this morning, afternoon Colorado time, after she was found dead in the mountains west of Denver. The 18-year-old was found near the base of Mount Evans in Clear Creek County, located about 45 miles west of Denver. A law enforcement source confirmed uh, that she is, in fact, dead and apparently by her own hand. It wasn't immediately clear um, how she died, but the FBI's Denver office said that on Twitter there was no longer a threat to the community. Um, a woman was hiking in that area in the morning. She was told to leave the area because uh, a woman matching the description with a gun was spotted in the area running through the woods, and apparently she either deliberately or inadvertently ended up uh, ending her own life. Well, you know, we as women, we face a lot of challenges and engaging in conversation is an important part of learning how to cope with the life uh, that we find ourselves living. I want to let you know about a great opportunity for women to engage in constructive, edifying conversation. I want to invite you to join in the conversation that's starting on April the 22nd on TBN. It's Better Together, TBN's first daily original program. This is a show that's made by women for women. Uh, It's spirit-filled conversation about friendships, about our identity, about finding our voice, and so much more. On the couch will be Victoria Olstein, Lori Crouch, 
Christine Kane for authentic, fruitful conversation about faith and life. And others will come and go as part of that conversation as well. They're going to be talking about friendships, toxic relationships and identity, social media, intimacy with God, children and family, all of the things that women care about and we're faced with on a regular basis. How do we hear God's voice in the midst of it all? Again, the program is Better Together. Mark your calendars. It starts on April the 22nd on TBN. Join the circle for some genuine dialogue, and we'll be giving you some details as we approach that uh, start date. But again, Better Together on TBN, their first daily original program made by women for women. Well, President Trump on Tuesday vetoed a joint resolution calling on the U.S. to end military assistance to Saudi-led forces fighting in Yemen's ongoing civil war, calling it an unnecessary, dangerous attempt to weaken my constitutional authorities, endangering the lives of American citizens and brave service members both today and in the future, end quote. Well, it was just the second veto of the president's presidency, the first having just come a few weeks ago. Congress lacks the votes to override him, we understand. Well, both houses of Congress had invoked the War Powers Resolution of 1973 in a bid to end the American involvement in that conflict, which has raged in the Middle East country since 2015. Now, Congress has shown signs of uneasiness with the president's close relationship with Saudi Arabia as he's tried to isolate Iran, a regional rival. Now, many lawmakers, they also criticize the president for not condemning Saudi Arabia for the killing of Saudi writer Jamal Khashoggi, who'd been critical of the kingdom. Senator Tim Kaine, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said in a statement that the veto was part of an alarming pattern. Hey, this was only the second uh, time. But anyway, part of an alarming pattern of Trump turning a blind eye to Saudi Arabia's actions that fly in the face of American values and accuse the administration of de- deference to Saudi Arabia at the expense of American security interests in quote. Well, Senator Bernie Sanders, who co-sponsored the resolution in the Senate, along with uh, Senator Mike Lee of uh, Utah, a Republican, tweeted. Now, this is Sanders tweeting, but uh, Mike Lee is a co-sponsor. The people of Yemen desperately need humanitarian help, not more bombs. I'm disappointed, but not surprised that Trump has rejected the bipartisan resolution to end U.S. involvement in the horrific war in Yemen, end quote. Now, it's not unusual for uh, the executive uh, to show deference to a particular country with whom they have strong disagreement for the sake of a broader issue. So this isn't altogether uncommon, but this is uh, the, well, one of the first times that President Trump has been called out for that very practice. The U.S. has provided billions of dollars of arms to the Saudi-led coalition fighting against Iran-backed rebels in in uh, Yemen. Rather, Members of Congress have expressed concern about the thousands of civilians killed in coalition airstrikes since the conflict began. Now, the fighting in the Arab world's poor poorest country also has left millions suffering from food and medical care shortages and has pushed the country to the brink of famine. Well, after the Senate passed the resolution last month, the White House argued it was flawed and would undermine the fight against extremism. The administration also argued that U.S. activities in that area, support of the Saudi-led forces, didn't constitute hostilities and claimed the resolution could establish bad precedent for future legislation. Well, House approval of the uh, resolution came earlier this month on a 247-175 vote. The Senate vote uh, last month was 54-46. Well, the president issued his first veto last month on legislation related to immigration. He had declared a national emergency so that he could use more money to construct a border wall. Congress voted to block the emergency declaration. The president vetoed that measure and uh, Congress did not have sufficient numbers to override the president's veto that time and did not have it this time either. 
Well, Dallas County's new district attorney announced his office is going to decide not to prosecute theft of necessary items up to $750. These are not victimless crimes, but let me repeat that. He's no longer going to prosecute theft of necessary items up to $750. Well, the announcement drew an immediate reaction from small business owners who were worried that word of the policy will encourage shoplifting. And while the Dallas County District Attorney, John Kresvot, Um, He tried to clarify his new policy uh, on Friday. Some business owners are worried about what the uh, DA's new policy will mean for them. One said his biz- he and his business partner own three shops in uh, an arts district. The DA's letter to the people of Dallas County does not sit well with us. To have the thought of someone being able to come in and steal $750 from us and there be no consequence is unfathomable to me, he said. The DA's letter says criminalizing poverty is counterproductive for our community's health and safety. For that reason, this office will not prosecute theft of personal items less than $750 unless the evidence shows that the alleged theft was for economic gain. Now, how do you go about that exactly? They say essentials. Um, For us, essentials are clothing. People have to have clothing. Ellison's question why the, uh, uh, the DA, the district attorney, set such a high dollar amount for prosecution. This is not a victimless crime, he points out. Well, the district attorney tried to clarify his new policy, saying maybe I should say consumption items. Maybe we should have uh, put the word in there. Uh, we're talking about food and formula that people need to uh, to live. Maybe I didn't put enough words in when I said personal items. Maybe I should have said personal consumption items. Well, anybody walking out with $750 worth of uh, food and formula would be a, a bit of a challenge. First of all, you'd be Uh, caught. Um, But but again, choosing not to prosecute. Well, Jason Roberts, who's the owner of another uh, local business, said he supports the DA's new policy. I would hate to have the worst thing you've done be the flag of for who you are as human being for the rest of your life. But business owners like Ellison hope the policy doesn't encourage criminal behavior. People are going to become more and more confident with uh, stealing, opening the floodgate for more and more theft in the future. He's worried that if it grows, there will be no more small business owners at all. Well, the district attorney did say that his office is trying to partner with academic institutions to track crime numbers to see if the new policy is causing an increase in crime. Those numbers could prove hard to track, though, if people stop reporting the crimes because they're not prosecutable. And therefore, are they actually crimes? It's a legitimate uh, and useful question. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I know, kind of sad. Speaking of sad, I've got a couple of things to announce. Uh, They did it. We're talking about the Oregon legislature. They have now scheduled House Bill 2217 for a vote tomorrow on the House floor uh, of the Oregon legislature. Now, you might recall that House Bill uh, 2217 would substantially expand the ways that the lethal drugs and physician-assisted suicide could be administered. This broadens the existing loopholes in that law that would make it possible for someone with malicious intent to pressure or force suicide on someone. The other bill, Senate Bill 579, would uh, make exception to the 15-day waiting period before someone was granted the uh, the right to engage in physician-assisted suicide.
suicide. Senate Bill 579, another assisted suicide expansion bill, is also headed for a full vote by the Senate, and that's going to be very soon. So keep your eyes and ears open for that one. But House Bill 2217 is scheduled for tomorrow in the House. Now, if you're interested in communicating with your lawmaker, you might know who they are, you know their email address, you have their phone number, I would encourage you to communicate as soon as possible. If you do not, you can go to uh, Oregon Right to Life's uh, website, and they have a link that can help connect you with your representative in the House. So do check that out. But again, uh, the Oregon legislature has moved this bill forward, House Bill 2217. That would substantially expand the ways that the uh, lethal drugs and physician-assisted suicide can be administered, further broadening the uh, existing loophole that uh, leaves uh, open the possibility, at least a greater a possibility and perhaps opportunity uh, for fraud and abuse. So keep that in mind. Well, California, Washington and Oregon have all been having a debate about switching out their state statue figures in the halls of Congress with new ones. The three targeted for removal among the uh, three states just happen to be Christian missionaries. Well, Oregon legislators are uh, attempting to remove the statue of Jason Lee that represents the state of the nation's uh, capital. A regular assault on the state's Christian heritage launched Uh, Six of the past seven years, Senator Arnie um, Roblin of Coos Bay, a Democrat, sponsored this year's rendition of the bill to remove the statute of uh, Reverend Jason Lee, a missionary and a pioneer who founded the city of Salem, Willamette University and uh, Oregon's first provisional government. Senate Bill 446 would replace the state's two statues uh, in the U.S. Capitol Statuary Hall, one of Lee and another of Dr. John McLaughlin, a fur trader, a medical doctor who founded Fort Vancouver and retired to Oregon City uh, with bronzes of Nez Perce Chief uh, Joseph and Abigail Scott Dunaway, a woman's uh, rights advocate, according to John Fortmeyer. Uh, with Christian News Northwest. Well, Christians have successfully defeated these attempts in the past by lobbying their state lawmakers to retain Lee's statue in recognition of the state's Christian roots. Now, he was also, he had a significant impact beyond his uh, Christian ministry, and my guess is if that was not an element of it, his statue would probably not be questioned at this point. But California debated whether to replace their statue of Father uh, Junipero Serra and uh, astronaut, uh, rather with astronaut Sally Ride, Uh, Father Junipero Serra was a Franciscan missionary, renowned speaker who established missions in California. Sally Ride was the first astronaut in space. The Washington legislature debated a similar proposal by Seattle Democrat Senator Reuven Carlisle to remove a statue of Dr. Marcus Whitman. Whitman was a Christian missionary and a physician who brought settlers west. Uh, His wife, uh, Narcissa, died in um, uh, Cayuse uprising or in that uprising after a measles epidemic decimated the tribe. Whitman has a um, uh, county mission college named after him. Washington is representing uh, in statuary hall by Whitman and Mother Joseph of the Sisters of Providence. Replicas of both statues stand in the north entrance of the legislative building in Olympia. So again, that effort has been reintroduced. And if you are uh, committed to uh, trying to keep their presence on the um, state capitals of Oregon and Washington, respectively. Now is the time to communicate. Well, today is the Wednesday of Holy Week. And Matthew 21, 14 says this, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Mind and body, reason and miracles, Jesus' ministry included both this final week as always. In the clean-swept temple, 
recall on Monday, he overturned the money changers tables. He taught and he also healed. He asked men to understand and he performed what surpasses understanding. As the blind saw and the lame walked, cries of wonder and echoed uh, along the marble porticos and the crowd swelled till temple authorities took fresh alarm. Even more than brilliant teaching, miracles will always draw a thong, a throng rather. Wednesday's healing miracles kept the city in a fever of excitement. Well, this fourth day of Holy Week represents those times when our natural lives touch the supernatural, when here on earth we are caught up in the divine mystery. But still, we are not at the best. We stand wonderstruck, by sh- but we're short of Easter. How strange it is, this journey we're embarked on. On Wednesday, we seem, uh, we seem to have arrived at a very throne room of God, and yet the road leads on, out into the dark. How many of those who were healed there in the temple followed Jesus to the end? though he had done so many signs before them. John writes of that last week, yet they did not believe in him. John twelve thirty seven. For Jesus, healing was always a sign, a pointer to something greater and something better, better than health, greater than an end to pain. Yes, he answers, follow me and see. Unspeakable pain lay just ahead for Jesus, but he embraced it for the sake, for the sake of that better thing. The road to Easter does not remain on the mountaintop of the miracle. It leads down through death to everlasting. Alleluia. Thank you for the healing that points beyond on this Holy Wednesday. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with John Gogger. He is the author of Kids Say the Wisest Things. And on occasion, they do, not all the time, because the scriptures also say foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But Jesus pointed out that there are aspects of a child that we ought to... uh, Try to replicate the subtitle of the book, 26 Lessons You Didn't Know Your Children Could Teach You. And then I'm looking forward in the five o'clock hour to talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Uh, We're going to talk about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He uh, is the Bible teacher for the downtown Bible class, both heard here on KPDQ and at the Portland Art Museum on most Wednesdays. And he's also the pastor of Southwest uh, Bible Church. So we're looking forward to uh, having a conversation with Pastor Scott as we anticipate Good Friday. Tomorrow, of course, is Maundy Thursday and Resurrection Sunday is coming. So we are excited about uh, that celebration, but we need to sit in just a few moments in the element of the story before Resurrection Sunday to fully appreciate as much as is possible with our limited capacity, the sacrifice made on our behalf by the Son of the Living God. I want to thank James Blinn for producing and engineering today's program. I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.